and welcome back to the home class movie chat um i we are your hosts i'm kat i'm paul a married couple that just loves talking about movies because we don't get out a whole lot we certainly don't and i can't actually believe i actually went through our movie list and not not that we've done a huge amount of of uh, movie on our podcast but i went through our movie list and i cannot believe we actually had never done this one I know. I thought we did this like one of the first ones. That's what I thought so too. But no, we actually haven't done this one. So this one we're going to be doing today is the 1980 movie that was written by um, Stephen King. And it was by, uh, God, what is his, what's his name? Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. The 1980 movie, The Shining. Classic, starring Jack, classic yes, horror movie. Starring uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, Skatman Crothers, Shirley Duvall, Denny Lloyd. Barry Nelson, Louise Burns. It's got a cast of hundreds. Not a cast of thousands, but a cast of hundreds. A cast of, of tens. Yeah, a cast, <laughs> cast of tens. Although I've got to admit that the uh, the actual, I mean, the setting is beautiful, but uh, they don't really need to do a lot of wardrobe uh, for this movie because Jack basically is in the same outfit almost through the entire movie. Yeah. Now, the Overlook Hotel is actually filmed at a place it's a real place it's called the stanley hotel and it is in estes park colorado in the united states so we have we definitely have to go there before i go there i need to buy a um shining (laughs) t-shirt yes definitely Uh, because that would be absolutely amazing to do that one but yeah that that would be a uh a place that i actually wouldn't mind going to going to just to say that i stayed at the shining hotel yeah even that's the stanley but it's still you know named as the shining hotel yeah yeah definitely there are a lot of scenarios in this movie that's that's uh we're going to get into that's very hard to to i mean we don't want to dive completely head deep really down because there are so many rabbit holes in this movie that can go so far down it's not funny and it's almost like you know every bit of every bit of the rabbit hole you can go left and right you can find somewhere completely different but yeah this movie is a as absolute classic um they did do another one which is dr sleep but actually i had been trying to avoid for the longest time and i watched it and I was thoroughly impressed by Dr. Sleep. I thought that was actually really quite a quite a good movie. It really was. Yeah, so we haven't done Dr. Sleep yet. We haven't done Dr. Sleep we yet, should, no. We should do that as a follow-up to this one. Yeah, we should. That would be a good idea because that way we can actually follow on from what happens at, in this movie. So. Yeah, and it is actually, I wasn't sure how it, good it would be because sequels are, as we all know, are usually really hit or miss. Yeah. Definitely. Doctor Sleep was a really good movie, all on its own, and could totally stand alone. Yeah, it it really could. I mean, I I like the fact that it does follow. I mean, obviously, you can't have Danny Lloyd because he grew up, and you can't have, you know, Shelley Duvall because you know she's a lot. No, the whole idea is that Danny Lloyd's character did did grow. Yeah, it it it, yeah I know, but I'm saying the guy who played Danny as a child totally could have played him as an adult. Yeah, well, yeah, you could because but... the timing honestly would have been fine. Yeah, but I, but we will definitely get to Doctor Sleep when we get around to it. So, 
Before we get started on this podcast, I think we need to listen to the trailer of The Shining. So everyone knows what we're going to be talking about. So here is the um, movie trailer for The Shining. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. So from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family for the next. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom, are you really going to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is a uh, tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. Like you died. I killed you with Danny. You did this to me. Did you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Here's Johnny. <laughs> okay, that was an. I always like that trailer because it gives you a bit of an overview of everything. There are. There is a different trailer, not the one that you heard, but there is just one trailer that was originally out there, which was just basically the uh, picture of the, um, oh God, I always have a brain fart this early when I'm doing it, of of the lifts, where you got the get the lifts and you're just basically having a scrolling text of The Shining, who stars in it, and then you see the blood start to come from uh, the left-hand side of, of the lifts and basically just... And, Basically okay, comes and, towards and, and the camera. For those in America, lifts mean elevator. Elevators, elevators. So you get the picture of the elevators, and and the blood comes out. That's the non-talking, um, you know, trailer of The Shining. The one that you just heard, thank goodness, has has talking in it because you wouldn't understand what's going on. I mean, the music itself is wonderful, but yeah, you need to know what's going on with the trailer. Would you like a piece of trivia about that shot with the yep. blood in the elevators? That I would like to know. Yes. Okay. So Stanley Kubrick apparently is famous for his compulsive, for his compulsiveness and perfectionism and numerous retakes and got the difficult shot of blood pouring from the elevators in only get this three takes. <laughs> now, now this would okay. be unremarkable if it wasn't for the fact that the shot took nine days to set up. Every time the doors opened and the blood poured out, Kubrick would say it doesn't look like blood. In the end, the shot took approximately a year to get right. Holy crap. Yeah. And it was a practical effect. It wasn't a model. Yeah, apparently so. Oh, my God. See, that's perfectionism. I mean, you know, he he's the kind of person, he's the kind of director, apparently, that, you know, he will do like the, there's a scene where Skatman Carruthers is sitting there with Denny Lloyd. And they've just had some ice cream. They're sitting in, in the kitchen. And he he took over 30 takes for that. It was just two people talking. And at one stage, you know, Scatman was basically saying, what do you want? Like, exactly how many takes do you want us to do? And Danny Lloyd was just sitting there. He was just happy just to keep talking. 
But Scatman was really getting exhausted. And he's like, I don't know what you want. We're doing the same thing over and over again. But obviously, you know, due to the fact that he is such a perfectionist, you know, Kubrick basically has made this iconic movie that really looks great. Well, that being said, interestingly, Jack Nicholson suggested Scatman Carruthers for that role. Perfect. And, and and Scatman had a tough time on this movie with Stanley Kubrick making him do over 100 takes for one scene. Yeah. Probably the one you were just talking about. I'm probably thinking that one. Now, his next film of Scatman Carruthers was Bronco Billy, also in 1980, directed by Clint Eastwood, who was famous for generally only going with one take. Now, Scatman broke down in tears of gratitude on his first scene when he realized he wouldn't have to do endless take after take again. Yeah. And that's, that is saying something. I know that um, Kubrick gave... Um, Shelley Duvall, a very, very hard time on the set. Um, she said it was one of the worst uh, movies that she's done on, well, on, on that, set. On that end, she act- did you know she actually service, uh, suffered rather from nervous exhaustion throughout filming, including physical illness and hair loss? Yeah, I did know that one. And that when you see, there's a documentary called Room 237. Um, I've never seen it. I've heard about it. I really want to find that. I really want to find that movie, um, but it does. I've, I've seen little snippets of it, but you do see just how Shelley is actually just, you know, just like broken down. There is a scene and we're getting to it into the movie where she has to um, basically come out from the hotel and push the door uh, open. There's so much snow. So, you know, they're outside and they've got the snow machine going and she's inside with a knife and she's got her just her, her park run. She's ready to go. And they call action. Well, she doesn't hear it because the sound that's going on and they're standing there and they're standing there and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, um, Kubrick goes, okay, cut, cut. And he goes in and he goes, Shelly, what are you doing? And she goes, what? I'm waiting here for you to say action. And he said, oh, for God's sake, Shelly, can you not hear that I said action? And she's like, what do you mean? How can I not hear you? There's all this machines going outside. I can't hear what's going on. You're telling me suddenly, you know, go action, go. Oh, stop. And she said, I don't know what you want. And at that stage, she, I mean, he blew up at her and she, she left the, 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 um, the set just in tears. Cause she's like, you know, suddenly it's like, okay, go action. Oh no, stop. And it's like, yeah, what do you want me to do? You yeah. know? And, and that's the thing really... is, you know, we, we watch these movies and they seem so effortless. Yeah. And you don't, people don't realize what goes into this. And, you know, you look at the actors and you're like, oh, that is like such an easy job. I can't believe they get paid so much money to do it because all they have to do is memorize their lines, figure out their blocking and say the lines. Yeah. You know, and pretend to be somebody else. And it on the outside, especially with a very talented actor, it looks really, really easy. But you don't realize what a lot of these people go through in making a film and the things that can happen. I mean, you know, not to, not to digress, but um, Martin Sheen, at I think 22 years of age, had a heart attack and almost died on the set of Apocalypse Now. Really? Yeah. Because it was that stressful. Because it was that stressful. Yeah. He almost died. See, you know, and I I don't want to digress too much from this movie, but there's two movies that I know of. You've got, you know, um, Ellen Burstyn in The Exorcist, where, you know, um, you know, the guys, the one scene that is predominantly, you know, um, where you've got, she's in Reagan's room, the door shuts and the giant dresser drawers come towards her. 
Yeah. Uh, no, not not coming towards her. Sorry, it was the one where Reagan gets up and smacks her mother across the face and launches her across the room. So the stuntman had been pulling Ellen Burstyn rather rather hard, and she got up and she said, "Listen, you can't keep doing this to us. You can get the the scene very easily, but you don't need to do this to us. You don't need to pull me that hard. I'm going to hurt myself." And the director is like, "Okay, you know, sorry, sorry," and. At the, the next scene, when you're about to see it again, before he, he says to the, to the you know, you know, action, she said she looked over towards the stuntman and looked over towards the director. The director winked at the stuntman. He said, action. He pulled her again so hard. When she hits the floor, when she actually does that cry out, it's because she actually hurt her coccyx. She's had back issues ever since. Yeah, I believe it. And another scene is that, and in another movie, just quickly, is The Godfather Part 2, where um, Michael Corleone um, hits um, Kate across the face. So the director had said to, to, they'd been doing take after take after take, and he said it just didn't seem right. It just didn't seem like it was really getting it. And so he says to Al, hit her, as in really hit her. hit her. So when you see Diane Keaton hit by Michael Corleone, it's an actual slap oh. at that moment where she says it was an abortion. I got rid of the baby. When yeah. he jumps up and slaps her, that's the actual slap. Now, and, and, and of course, they had to stop the, the production. And, you know, um, Al Pacino had to sit with Diane Keaton and, you know, comfort her and tell her it was all about. And, and apologize. And she actually said it was one of the best scenes of the movies, of any movie she's ever done. Yeah. But she said because it was authentic about the fact that I was actually hit that hard across my face. Yeah. Nowadays, you couldn't get away with that. No, no, you couldn't. Um, but that being said, it is possible to make it look real and painful without actually making connection. One yeah. of Harrison Ford's uh, shining recommendations is the fact that every stuntman in Hollywood is wants to sign up to work with him because in the Indiana Jones movies, obviously he gets into a lot of fights and the stuntmen hate working hate it when the actors want to do their own fight scenes yeah because more often than not they end up getting hurt because the actors don't know what they're doing yeah and exactly. they don't know how to pull the punch to yeah. make it look real but not actually connect and harrison ford apparently with the indiana jones movies wanted to do all of his own stunt work and as much of his stunt work as he was allowed to and also all of his own fight scenes. And the, and the stuntmen are like, ah, crap. <laughs> never once laid a hand on them. Real, well, see, that's, that's, the, that's a good actor. Yeah. That's an actor that knows what they're doing when it comes to stunt work. Yeah. But that's... You know, so it, it goes both ways. But, the, but one of the things that I did find fascinating about The Shining is that Danny Lloyd at about, I don't know, he was like, what, six, five, six years old? Yeah. Um, didn't, and, until he was a teenager, he didn't know this was a horror movie. Yeah, that is amazing. And he thought he was only going to get about $30 for, for being a star in the movie. Yeah. But the fact that he didn't know, but the fact is that Stanley Kubrick made it that way, that whenever there was a chase scene, whenever there was something scary, um, he would make it as, as a game. Yeah. So, and even like, you know, very, very violent scenes, like the scene where Jack is backing Shelly up, uh, up the stairs. Uh -huh. um, Danny Lloyd was away from the set that day. Any scary stuff that was to be yeah. done, he had to be well and truly away from that. But because... what I find fascinating is that they had him react 
in terror, like when he saw the twins in the hallway. Yeah. And yet he didn't know this was supposed to be scary. Exactly. And How the way, cool is that? And that was really good because after each take, when there was a, a, a break where they were being set up, whatever, he would actually go and play with the with the two little girls. So oh, I didn't it, know that. Yeah. So it was basically like they were all friends on the set. And so when you see him react to the to the twins, he had to make it look like he was terrified of them, but they were all best friends on the set. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now now what's what's interesting too, speaking of breaks between takes is Tony Burton had a brief, was the, was the garage owner, Larry Durkin. Mm. And he arrived on set one day carrying a chess set in hopes of getting a game with somebody during a break from filming. Now it turns out Stanley Kubrick is an avid chess player who had in his youth played for money. And he noticed this chess set. And despite production being way behind schedule, Kubrick proceeded to call off filming for the day so that he could engage in a set of games with Burton. And Burton only managed to win one game, but nevertheless, Kubrick thanked him since it had been some time since he played against a challenging opponent. Yeah, he was. He he would apparently go into the park in um, Central Park yeah. and play with the people there in Manhattan. In Manhattan and, and play for money. Yeah, I thought it was really wonderful. Yeah, but I just that is, it's like we're way behind schedule. We're way behind budget, but I'm canceling the rest of the day so I can play chess. <laughs> Like, really? They see that's the power of some directors. Yeah, it is. But we are going to start off this movie okay. being the 1980 Shining with an opening scene that I think is absolutely gorgeous. It's the sweeping scene over the river or mm-hmm. over a large body of water. And uh, there's that small little island in the center and the, and the camera then pans over and we're following a little yellow Volkswagen doing winding through the hills and winding through the, the mountainous uh, side of Colorado. In fact, they call that road the sidewinder in the movie. Yeah, which is I can understand why. Because it's like a sidewinder snake. Yeah. And we then come across this beautiful open pan shot of a hotel that has an, an enormous mountain on the back. And that is the Overlook Hotel. We find it- that. Sorry. Which includes our first goof. Yes, our first goof. What is our first goof? Um, there is a 13-foot hedge maze Yep. that you do not see in that opening sequence, but in any other shot of the external of the hotel, it's like about 100 feet from the front door. Yeah. So that's one of the big goof. One of the biggest goofs on the, on the movie is that there is no hedge maze there, but there is supposed to be a hedge maze. But then we follow this gentleman walking into the hotel and we find out that his name is Jack Torrance and he's coming to be, um, he's basically applying for a position as the, basically the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel through the winter. Um, He's there in an effort to rebuild his life after a volatile temper lost him his teaching position. And we find that if you read the book, we find out that Jack actually um, assaulted a student and he was basically disbarred from being a teacher. And this was his last shot of really, you know, not his last shot of of working, but when he says, you know, that he was a teacher, he never tells exactly why he's not a teacher anymore. And it's because he he physically assaulted a a student. So he was disbarred from being a teacher. So now he's going to be basically applying for the position of the caretaker of the Overlook. And he meets um, the hotel manager, Mr. Ullman, and this is one of our next goofs is that in the out the lay outlay of the hotel, there is a window at the back of Mr. Ullman's um, desk, which should not be there. 
because it doesn't look out onto the anywhere because the actual his actual office is in the center of the hotel there would be rooms or ballrooms at the back of them so there was there was no reason for a window there yeah but I, the I, reason I, mm-hmm. the reason yeah. that um, kubrick put a window there apparently was to make sure that you didn't become claustrophobic immediately it was the one piece of non-claustrophobia that he was trying to to make it out to be is like you know we're not you're not going to be locked into a room immediately so it's basically like you know jack's view of the outside world in that small little space well that and the general manager of the hotel would have a room with a window he wouldn't be in a windowless cubicle oh absolutely and i honestly don't really care about that particular error um because, no, look, I don't either. But if you read yeah, the online forums, it, they'll I mean, say it that. Makes sense. I mean, if anything, his office was a little small for his role. Yeah, definitely. But uh, you know, as I said, it, it, with this movie, you can go down so many rabbit holes and come to a completely different movie. The fact is, if you go down the the rabbit hole of reading all the synopsis of movies and the ins and outs of this hotel, the way and someone actually, this is how many people have got you know time on their hands someone actually did a scale model not a scale model but um a 3d rendering drawing of the hotel of where things should be mm-hmm. and his ho- his office is in the center of the hotel where no no window could possibly be you know it, it was just one of those little synopsises that you can actually go down you know again i that one i no. really don't care about i honestly don't even think it's worth mentioning no um so basically you know, um, I think it's more entertaining to know that if you pay attention to the desk during the interview, there's a pen that keeps changing positions between uh, cuts <laughs> between the two men. Yeah. Okay. You see, that sort of thing would actually interest you know, a lot of people, but that's sort of like, mm, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's that's trivial, but I find it small much more detail. interesting than the window that shouldn't exist. <laughs> um, but and basically, the nameplate that disappears and reappears. His nameplate disappears yeah. and reappears. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Jack basically says to him, listen, you know, um, you know, because you know, he, he's interviewing for this position and he says, listen, I just want to ask you, you know, why is it that you guys closed down? Because the, 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 the skiing would be fantastic up here. And Mr. Ullman says, listen, the fact is that the sidewinder, it gets about 20 feet of snow. The sidewinder would be so hard to keep, you know, open of, you know, and available to people. It would be too costly. 25 miles of backtracking on yourself road yeah in with 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 over 20 feet of snow over the course of the winter yeah to try and keep that cleared would, would be, be a nightmare astronomical and really difficult yeah so he's like no we just, it just it's just not possible well and and i like the fact that and i like the fact that they they asked the question because that's in the back of everybody's mind it's oh like, absolutely why are you guys staying open it's like unbelievable skiing yeah um, that would be that was my first re- thought but the other thing that he mentioned is that the hotel was built between 1907 and 1909, back in the day when it was chosen for its remote location and this and that, and this great scenery, and people weren't into skiing back then. Yeah, exactly. And so, so there's really no, because there's also no ski resorts in the area. No. So this, this hotel is basically more along the lines of you'd go up there and you would enjoy hiking through the, the wilderness right. and seeing things up there, but not so much skiing. Yeah. And now, now, obviously, you know, times have changed back in the 1980s where skiing was becoming very, very uh, a, a good popular. sport. 
very, very popular. And this is where Mr. Ullman says, look, you know, it would be a good idea, but cost effectively, we couldn't do that. You now, know? that being said, they close on October 30th, the day before yep. Halloween. Yep. And we see the place, at, you know, they're, we're there for at least a month when we see the externals of the thing. And there's hardly any snow. Yeah. Now, we're in the upper levels of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Yeah. Trust me, you've got snow by Halloween and you've really got snow by the end of November. Yeah, I was going to say, I flew into I flew into Colorado when I first went to America in 2009 and that was in uh, middle November and uh -huh. I, we flew over the Rocky Mountains and going into Colorado, it was snowing. Yeah. Big yeah. time. It was just a, a sea of white. Now, now, another thing that I find interesting about this um, movie is that it is based on a Stephen King novel. Yeah. And it's not set in Maine. That is one of the very, very interesting things about this because every movie that, that Stephen King writes about, or every book that he writes, has to be set in Maine. Yeah, Cujo was done in Maine. From. And he yeah. knows and he knows the territory. Yeah. Pet Cemetery was done in Maine. You know, everything was done around Almost Maine. Every other story, every mm. other film based on Stephen King is set in Maine, which I thought it was interesting that this one wasn't. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So basically we have the conversation backwards and forwards about, you know, that uh, you know, why did you leave? And and he's like, you know, I'm I'm you know outlining a, a writing project in five months would be just absolutely perfect because they reopened on May the first. So he's got from you know yeah, October they to were May. Asking, he's like, is you know, is the isolation gonna get to you? And he's like, No, it's perfect. We're so excited about it. Yeah, because I'm I've got a writing project or I'm gonna be writing a new book. So I wanna this is gonna be wonderful. And he goes, Okay, well, I just want to let you know, you know. There was, uh, he just basically recounts, basically by pointing about the fact that the previous caretaker, uh, Charles Grady, um, unfortunately, during, through the season, he must have had a complete mental breakdown and he killed his wife and children uh, with an axe, stacked them neatly in one of the, one of the rooms in the West Wing and then put barrel, both barrels of a shotgun into his mouth and blew his brains out. Now and he said, basically, and Mr. Roman was saying, basically, what we think is that what it was the old timers would call cabin fever. The fact that you were cooped up with, you know, people for a long sense, a long period of time and, a, and an amazing, huge sense of isolation. And he's like, oh, OK. And he, and he goes, so basically, your wife would be OK with that? And he's like, well, listen, my wife's a you know, confirmed ghost and horror film fan. I think she'll be absolutely fascinated by that sort of story. Now, I have a question about Grady. Yes. So he said that Grady killed his family in 1970, which was 10 years previously. Mm -hmm. Okay. We meet the ghost of Grady yep. later in the film when it's in the 1920s and he's one of the butlers. Yeah. So how could he have killed his family in 1970 when he was there in the 1920s? This is the rabbit hole that you can go down and you can go too far down into it. A very, very small, very brief overview is the fact that um, Jack has always been the caretaker. Grady has never been, um, was never the caretaker of the hotel. Yeah, that conversation was weird. It's a very, very weird conversation. Um, you know, it's basically the hotel's way of manipulating to get Jack into the hotel because the hotel knows that Denny is extremely powerful with the shining and can basically reignite the, the hotel again. 
basically it is the fact now that- i never really aside from you saying that to me i never really got that okay you've got scatman Carruthers who has the ability to shine yeah. but can't see what denny sees right he can't see the twins he can't he can't he he's afraid of room 237 but he, he can't see what denny sees right i i denny understand can see that, everything but I, I don't necessarily see the connection of the hotel wanting danny i see the hotel wanting jack no the hotel doesn't want jack the hotel the hotel wants denny the hotel so the is using trying to use jack to get to Danny. yeah jack is a conduit to try and to bring denny into the hotel so how would danny's death serve the hotel Danny's death would only help the hotel because the energy that Danny has with the shining would be able to reignite the hotel into its former glory of, of being able to be um, basically a gateway of all paranormal situations going on. So when Jack sits there and talks to Grady and, and Grady says, you know, you're the caretaker, you've always been the caretaker, I should know I've always been here. When you see that segment where he walks into the gold room and you've got all the 1920s things going on, if you see the very, very final part of the movie where you see the picture of Jack and it says Overlook Hotel, July the 4th, 1917, or whatever it was, Jack was there in that time. So Grady has always been basically just, he's always been a waiter. Basically a reincarnation of something that was already there. Yeah. So basically, he's tra- so when they say about the fact that he put both barrels of shotgun into his mouth, the fact is that the whoever it was that was actually killed, it wasn't Charles Grady. It was basically the hotel was using that person to try and reignite the hotel. Right. So the hotel made him kill his family and put both barrels of shotgun into his mouth. It wasn't the fact that Charles Grady did it because Grady's never been the caretaker. Jack's always been the caretaker because he was in the picture from 1917 from the Overlook Hotel on July yeah. the 4th. It's a, as I said, this movie is not like a run of the mill movie where it's, you know, act one, act two, act three, we're finished. It yeah. is act one, let's go down this rabbit hole and you'll find 60 holes on the other side. Act two, you got another, another 100 holes. Yeah. Act three, you got 700 holes. It's so, I mean, you can get down to the fact that Danny rides his, his little tricycle around a loop that doesn't exist. It can't happen because if he goes from the kitchen, he does when one of the first things we see when Denny's on his tricycle. Yeah, there are he no does, circles in that place. Yeah. Now he does the first one, which is basically from the kitchen through the Colorado lounge, back down the hallway and back to the kitchen. That's that's a square. The second one we see is he goes from the kitchen. Then he goes onto the second floor landing, which is not possible because as he's going past the second floor landing, you get to see the window of the great room, which is on the left-hand side. And then you also get to see a part of the stairwell that's coming up from the from the first, um, from the first floor. He cannot get to the first floor yeah. on his tricycle. So as yeah. I said, this movie is a rabbit hole galore. It, it, well, that and um, when Danny's riding his um, big, wheel, big wheels, it's, it is, not it, it is technically a tricycle, but it's a big wheel, not just a tricycle. Yeah, yeah, I had the big wheels. I always wanted a big wheel when I was. I, was kid. I, I loved, I loved my big wheels. I really did. Um, and but like in the scene where he's with the the twins. Yep. The car, if you look closely, the carpet changes. Oh, see, I didn't in see that. Cuts. Yeah, see that. As I said, that's another rabbit hole you could really go down. This is a movie that you could sit and watch, but you can explore. And you can go so deep into this movie; it's not funny. Yeah. All the little, all the things like you know, even in when um, Jack is in the pantry, mm-hmm. at the back of him, there's a whole lot of tins that says Calumet, 
Well, yeah. that was a place that um, Kubrick spent time living in, Calumet City, Illinois. Uh, actually, Calumet is an actual type of baking powder. It's yeah, but it, but powder. it was in it's a it's a part of Illinois. Yeah, interesting. But it, and he but put that it in is there. actually a legit product. Yeah, it is. But he put it in there because of the fact that he spent time in that city. Oh, cool. So well, did you did you know that Stanley Kubrick, because he lived in England, was not familiar with the here's Johnny? That was a completely ad-libbed thing by, ad by, by Jack, Jack Nicholson, Nicholson, but because Kubrick wasn't familiar with it, he almost didn't use it. I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did because, yeah, yeah that is that is perfect. But see, we've we've spent this amount of time. We've already, already gone down seven rabbit holes. So let's, <laughs> let's get back to where we were. So oh, basically, wait, wait, wait. The, so then the next scene we see is Denny sitting. Um, he's going to be brushing his teeth and he's looking at the mirror. And oh, he basically, God, we haven't even gotten to the hotel Haven't even yet. got to the, haven't even got the hotel oh, yet. Oh, come on, let's hurry it up. All right, I'm getting there. I'm sorry. <laughs> see, this is what I put up with everyone. Um, <gasps> yeah, exactly. <gasps> Yeah, don't oh me. So anyway, Denny basically is sitting there and he goes, he says to himself, you know, Tony, do you think Dad's going to get the job? And you hear the little voice and it's not Denny's voice. It's a completely different voice saying he already did. He's going to call Wendy in a few minutes to tell her. Did Danny Lloyd actually do the two voices? Yes, he did. Yeah, that was really talented on him. They asked him what, what, if he was going to have an imaginary voice, uh, for an imaginary person, what voice could what what voice would you think he could do? And he sat with Stanley Kubrick and he went through and he was like, what? And Denny Lloyd's like, what do you mean? And he said, OK. And he bought a stuffed animal and he put it in front of Denny Lloyd. And he said, OK, if you were going to talk to that animal and it was going to talk back to you, what would, it sound what like? would it sound like? And he made a noise and he said, what? He said, just talk from that animal to yourself. And he started to do that voice. He said, okay, that's the voice of Tony. Now he said, we're going to take that away. He said, now you just start talking as in Tony. And that's when Danny Lloyd put his finger up. And as he was talking, he was doing the finger. That became Tony. That's how he, that's how he got the Tony. So every time he talked, that's when Tony came out. He, uh, Danny Lloyd said in a later interview, many, many years down the track, that when he was doing the finger, he was pre- he was pretending that that was the stuffed animal on his finger. Yeah, I believe that. That's cool. That that's how he got the the voice of Tony. That's so Tony, so cool. So Tony basically says, you know, you know, this is, you know, he's going to get the the uh, thing. Then we see a, a quick cut where Danny is laying in a bed, and we've got a um, uh, a doctor basically doing, you know, looking him over, and we find out. No, that no, he- no, no. Hold on a second, because something happened to to, to Danny to make her call the doctor. So what happened? He had a seizure brought on by well well no we don't know because he no, said no, he would no, because when he's when they're when he's in the bathroom he was he, talking to tony talking to tony he has a vision from the hotel i think it was the elevator of blood it was and, and then that and that turned him into the into the freeze thing that's right and with I the wide eyes he didn't seize he just went catatonic yeah, and then that's when when um, Wendy came and into the bathroom and, and she he fell. Heard him. She yeah. comes in. She's like, "What's going on?" So then she calls the doctor. Yeah, and then so the doctor basically says that you know um, he he had a seizure while talking to his imagi- imaginary friend Tony about the Overlook Hotel. He has a visions of blood splattering out of an elevator in the hotel, an image which is revisited several times throughout the movie. Yeah. So then we see that. Um, Wendy says to the, the, the doctor, listen, you know, you want to just come out and talk to me for a minute? 
And so, you know, um, Danny's just laying in bed and this conversation backwards and forwards about, you know, this imaginary person, Tony. And um, it, we find out that, unfortunately, Danny had a bit of an accident. And when, he, when we say accident, he had a shoulder injury. And the doctor said... Uh, he basically dislocated shoulder. A dislocated, yeah, the doctor said, what injury did he have? And he said, she said, I had a di- dislocated shoulder. And the doctor says, how did, she, how did he get that? And the conversation comes up that Denny um, had her, the, her, his father, Jack, had come home rather drunk one night and had thrown some papers on the ground, his, some of his, um, you know, well, he had uh, put his work. papers down and Danny, being a little boy, didn't know any better and was just playing with them. Yeah. And his dad so, was ballistic to get went him away to, from the papers. And used a little bit too much pressure. And it dislocated his shoulder. And as he, as she, as Wendy said, you know, you do it a hundred times with a child, and it was just that that one thing. But everything's fine. And you know, um, that's when my husband said that I'll never drink another, you know, bit of alcohol again. And if you do, yep. And if you do, you can leave me. And you know, she said so. Something good came out of it because he's no longer drinking, and it's been five months that uh, he hasn't drunk. And that's a really significant point to remember. Very much so. Exactly right. So then we see that this is moving day. We're actually arriving at the hotel and we find out that they're uh, basically had enough time to get something to eat. And uh, on the way up there, they were talking about, you know, Wendy says, well, we must be really high up. The air's so those thin and says about the fact that, oh, the isn't air this feels where, funny. Yeah. And isn't this where the Donner party got snowed, snowed in? And he said, no, I think that was more west to the Sierras. And this is when Denny says, what is the Donner party? And Jack just comes out with, you know, it was a, a group of settlers in covered wagon times that got snowbound and ended up by, you know, using cannibalism to stay alive. And this yeah, is when it was we- actually in the Sierra Nevadas between Cal- uh, Nevada and California. Oh, okay. I've actually been to that site. That would have been re- really and, interesting to and, see. And uh, it was really interesting. They have a monument to the Donner Party, and the base is as high as the snow got. Yeah. And it was probably at least a good 20 to 30 feet, between 20 what? and 30 feet. Yeah, Jeez. it was just ridiculous. Yeah. And I like the fact that, you know, when Wendy says, Jack, you know, don't talk to him about this stuff. And he goes, and Denny goes, it's okay, mum. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on the TV. <laughs> And that's what Jack says. See, it's all right. He saw it on the television. (laughs) So it's almost like, you know, why would I even be bothered to try and, you know, um, you know, protect my son from from this when he he can see it at any time on the TV. So we basically see that uh, we're at the hotel and this is moving day and everyone's moving out. They're moving in and they go through a couple of little things. And of course, um, you know, the uh, uh, Mr. Ullman says about the fact that, oh, you know, where's your family? And he says, oh, look here, my, my son's found the games room. Well, this is the first time that Danny gets to see the twins because he's there just throwing some darts. the only time we see the games room. Yeah, exactly the only time, which I would have had a ball there. Oh, but it he, was awesome. They yeah. had a pool table and darts. and Yep, pinball machine. They had everything there. Yeah. Um. So he turns around and he sees these two little girls in uh, blue blue outfits, like blue dresses, just standing there. Yeah, just looking at him and then turns in and walks away. And and he's just like sitting there looking at them. And we find then that we're just basically being shown through the hotel. Denny goes with his um, mum and goes through and has a look at all the the kitchen. And we're with the head chef by the name of Dick uh, Dick Halloran, which is Scatman Carruthers. And basically says to, um, suddenly calls Denny Doc. 
And this is when Wendy says to him, um, listen, why did you just call him Doc? And he goes, beg your pardon? He says, she says, you just called him Doc twice. Uh, you know, Actually, we... there was an interesting point right before that. Okay. Where they were in the, um, the pantry. And, yes. and he's talking along to, and, and Halloran's talking along to uh, Wendy and going on about this and that and the other and all the supplies that they have and he looks over at danny and you hear him like through telepathy saying hey doc would you like some ice cream yes and that's when he comes out of the room out and she's like i didn't tell you that we call him doc and he's like, oh, well, I must have just heard it because you look like a duck. Egg. What's up, duck? Yeah, but he does say, I must have heard you say it. And she's like, well, that's possible, but I don't think I've said it since I've been with you. Yeah. And that's our first inclination or, or, or hint that Halloran has the, shi- has the shining. Yeah. Now, did you know that, Stan- that, he, that um, Scatman Carruthers was not the original choice for ha- Halloran? No, who was it? Uh, Slim Pickens. Oh no! Well, but it's interesting because Scatman was a better one. Scanlan, Stan, I loved Scatman Carruthers. Scatman's awesome. But then again, I love him in anything. Um, But Stanley Kubrick originally wanted Slim Pickens to play Halloran, but Pickens wanted absolutely nothing to do with Kubrick after his experience working with him (laughs) on Doctor Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About Worrying and Love the Bomb back in 1964. I can imagine that because Kubrick was probably a nightmare to work with. with. His films are brilliant, but it's hell on earth getting there. So then we also see that one, when uh, Dick Heller and, and Denny are just sitting in the kitchen, just talking, um, Denny questions Dick about what went on in the hotel and says, you know, and he basically says, you know, there are a lot of things that happened that, you know, that happened a long time ago that, you know, basically leave a trace of themselves. And of course, this is when Denny goes, um, what about room 237? Of course, this is when Dick goes uh, room 237. And Denny says, you're afraid of room 237, ain't you? And he goes, no, I'm not. And he goes, Mr. Halloran, what is in room 237? And he goes, nothing. There is nothing in room 237, but you've got no business being there anyway. So stay out. And it was really, it ends up being that Dick is especially afraid of that room. Though he strives strives to assure Denny that the images he sees in the hotel are just like pictures in a book and can't hurt him. Dick sternly warns Denny to stay out oh, of room 237. So then we basically, now this is one thing that I find really interesting. And I actually said this to you when we were watching the movie and you agreed with me. Jack is hired as the caretaker. Mm-hmm. Jack is there to do repairs on the hotel. Should they start to, should things happen? The, they need to heat certain parts of the hotel on a rotating basis. Yep. And basically just make routine repairs, but yeah. it's not an especially and it's, difficult so job. Basically to make sure that the po- pipes don't freeze and burst. And, yeah. So you've got to yeah. do this, right? Now, now, now what, one thing they didn't do, which I think would have been really smart, was they showed them the snowcat machine so they yep. could get around. Yeah. But it's like at the it's in the garage, which is like 80 feet to away from the door to the hotel. Yeah, I is. would have parked it under the eave right next to the front door. That would have been a lot easier. Yeah. But then again, we, that, that way we would, but if they did that, we, we wouldn't have the the scope of getting out there when, yeah, when, know, when he goes I, out I there. Yeah, I get that, you know? but I'm just like, that's just stupid. So we find out that this is what really pisses me off. Now, you know, if, if, I, if I was hired oh. to do a job, you're there just to come along. Yeah. But we find out that 
Jack is not doing a goddamn thing. He just sits around writing Jack all day sits, long yeah. and expects her to take care of everything. Now, else. I understand that he's got this writing project that he's outlined, but how long would it take you to heat the the parts of the hotel on a rotating basis? If you got up, yes, because you know, one stage they get up at eleven thirty, so they've been really staying oh, she up brings late. Him breakfast in bed. I know breakfast in bed. And then she, then he, she says, oh, you know, it's really pretty out. Would you like to take me for a walk? And he goes, oh, maybe I should just do some writing first. It's like, Jack, this is all you do. Yeah. But so just say, okay, so just say, and we're going to use you and I as an as a, a example. Mm-hmm. You and I are at the hotel. Mm-hmm. So now we know at a certain time of the day, we have to heat that part of the hotel, yep. right? Yep. So we get up, we have breakfast, we do whatever. I, I'm writing some bright, what, doing whatever, you're doing whatever you're doing. At 11 o'clock, we have to heat the West Wing. I get up, I go down to the boiler room, I heat that room. It may, it, that part of the hotel may take me 45 minutes. That's all I have to do for the day. Well, it, I mean, it's not even that. It's just switching the boiler on for that part of the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. But for some reason, it's like, oh, okay, you know, Paul, you're, you've been hired for this position. Oh, by the way, Kat, you have to do all the work for it. I'm just going to sit know. there and it's get, like, it's like piss off, buddy boy. But so Jack's mental health deteriorates rapidly once the family is alone in the hotel. He has writer's block, sleeps too little, is and is irritable. Denny has visions of the two murdered Grady girls, but tells no one. He continues to wonder about room 237. Now, he sees the, the Grady girls um, on a loop of the hotel in his big wheels. That's not possible. Cannot happen from the ground floor. Yeah, he well, would literally have to carry his big wheels up two flights of stairs. Or take the elevator. Or take the elevator to, to ride around that. Because when he goes around the corner, technically he is two doors away from his apartment where he lives with his mother and father, which is on the second floor of the hotel. Yeah. Which is, yeah, accessed from a completely different area because it's the staff quarters. Now, um, can we talk about... Wendy and Jack for a moment. Absolutely. So Stanley Kubrick envisioned Shelley Duvall as this more timid, dependent version of Wendy Torrance from the very beginning. However, Jack Nicholson, after reading the novel, wanted Jessica Lange for the role. Yes, I heard that one. And even recommended her to Kubrick because he felt she felt she fit Stephen King's version much better. But after explaining the changes he made, Kubrick convinced him that Duvall was the correct choice as she best suited um, the emotionally fragile Wendy he had in mind. Now, many years later, Nicholson told Empire Magazine he thought Duvall was fantastic and called her work in the film the toughest job of any actor I've ever seen. Do you know another two actors that were actually up for the possibility of being Wendy Torrance? Who? Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay. And Sigourney Weaver. Real? Oh, definitely not Sigourney Weaver. Way mm. too strong of, a, of, a, of an energy for her. Yeah. Um, but what was uh, interesting was the story was uh, the, the story of The Shining was eventually readapted in 1997 to a miniseries that followed Stephen King's book more closely because of King's dissatisfaction with the Stanley Kubrick a- adaptation, which he called a fancy car without an engine, saying it was surface, not substance. Yeah, he had a problem with the color of the little yellow beetle. It should have been red. He had problem with everything. He did. However, Kubrick owned the rights to the 1980 adaptation. So in order for King to get the right to readapt his own book into the miniseries, Kubrick required he sign a legally binding contract that forced King to no longer be able to bring up frequent public criticism of Kubrick's film, save for the sole commentary that he was disappointed with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance as though he had been insane before his arrival at the Overlook Hotel. And I said that 
that exact thing to you that the one main that if I could have had any input on this film. Yeah. At the very end, when we see the picture of Jack in 1921 mm -hmm. at the overlook at the 4th of July ball. Yeah. Um, if I were making this film, I would have had Jack Nicholson's character look like that guy, very clean shaven, very professional, really like a great father, you know, uh, you know, really in love with his wife, really, you know, I would have had him there as a Mr. Normal. And I, and it would have been a much greater transition into the madness. Whereas when he showed up for his interview, he already looked like he was halfway there. Yeah, I remember you saying that, and I, I thoroughly do agree with you. I think that is is one of the the big things, and I and I find it interesting that you've just mentioned that. I did see the the Shining uh, miniseries that mm -hmm. was on TV. I didn't like it. It was disjointed, as far as I could tell. It was just everywhere, um, and it was. I think it was in two thousand and three or two thousand and four that I heard a um, interview done by um, Stephen King, and he praised the the movie. So there's the reason really? why he had to, yeah, he said it was a great movie. So, you know, um, that's obviously the reason that he had to sign yeah, that waiver to say, you know, stop shit talking my movie because, mm -hmm. you know, so obviously that was the, the thing that he had to say, but yeah. he praised it and said it was, it was a great adaptation. You know, he didn't say, I don't think he had to praise it. He didn't no, no, no. Stop criticizing all, it. all he basically said was it was a, he said it was a great adaptation of my movie, of my book. That was it. That was yeah. all he was. He said, because yep. he was on a panel of, of people. Yeah. So, but the, but it's really interesting how Jack's mental health starts to de deteriorate. You can almost see the time where the hotels got him. And at one scene, you see the um, the uh, the hedge maze. Now it's in in the ballroom. Uh, it's in the, the Colorado oh, the lounge. Miniature. The miniature. So that was supposed to be, even though they've got the big one outside, and it's supposed to just represent the the, the, the big one outside. This is what it looks like inside. It's basically a window into his mental Fine. state, where it there it's everything all over the place. There is no there is no co cohesive way to get into the center. You got to find your way into the center of the maze. His mental health is going in every direction, and it's basically in the the way that it's written in the book is that his mental health is the center of the maze, and it's going outwards rather than outwards coming in. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was really interesting because his mental health is is stable inside the maze in the center, but once you start to branch out, you get lost, and he starts to get lost of everything that's going on. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um. So while the weather is still relatively warm, Jack's wife Wendy and Denny walk through the maze of, of the tall hedges, making a game out of it, stopping at dead ends and fixing their mistakes, which is going to come back at the end of the movie as to yeah, what happened for the end of the film. Yeah. One day, a ball rolls towards Danny as he plays with his toys in the hallway. Now, let's go a little bit back, back, back a bit. Before that, we find that um, Danny is riding his little big wheels around the place. And obviously, we find that he can't get to the second floor or the first floor without going up into an elevator. And he goes past, as he's riding around, we're following him and we're tracking his progress. And he suddenly looks up towards the left-hand side of him and there is room 237. He stops, he walk, gets out of his little big wheels, he goes over, he tries the door, and he just he just is frozen at that door. He gets back in and it's tears away. It's locked at this point, but he just absolutely tears away from the room. Then basically we find that Denny is also um, just, he's just enjoying himself. He's just playing now. He's being a kid. He is. He's been telling Jack he wants to play with him. He plays with his toys. He just wants Jack to interact with him. 
Now in the book, we find out, and well, I want to keep harking back to the book, but in the movie, we see that Jack has got a tennis ball and he's bouncing it against the wall of the hotel. In the book, it's referenced that the hotel is playing with Jack. Now, even though Jack is throwing the ball against the wall, the ball is being bounced back from the wall. That's the hotel playing the ball with Jack. Yeah. Which is rather interesting because now we see that the hotel has got what it wants. It's got Denny. It's got Jack. It's got Shelly. Shelly's really on the outside of it. Well, sorry, Wendy, although I just used her regular name. Wendy Wendy is going to be a very, very great... um, help in the in the long run but really the hotel's got what it wants it's got the conduit which is jack bringing denny into the situation now we can start doing it so jack's really starting to disengage from from his family he doesn't i mean he can see what he doesn't want he doesn't want to be really a family man he doesn't really want his family um and this is where he's slowly starting to turn well, away and that, from his and that scene where he's been typing and working and she comes in just to check on him and offer him a sandwich or something and he yes. snaps at her yeah and says whatever you hear me in this room whether i'm whatever i'm doing in this room it means that i'm working and if, every time you come in here you distract me so basically we're going to make a new rule when you hear me in this room stay out and she goes okay and he goes okay so what we're going to do right now is you're going to just get the F out of this room. Yeah. Don't now, come in this room. Interesting. Cause Jack Nicholson claimed that that scene yeah. where he snaps at Wendy for interrupting his writing was the most difficult of the film for him. Really? Yeah. Because he is a writer himself and he had gotten into similar arguments with his girlfriend and being a method actor, he drew on his memories of those arguments and added the line, or if you come in here and you don't hear me typing, I'm in here. And that means I'm working. Yes. And he said, yeah. Well, did you know that he was living with Angelica Houston while they were filming this? (laughs) No, I didn't. Yeah. And she said that he would just come home, literally fall onto the bed and just, and be asleep before he even hit the bed. That I can understand. Because he was so exhausted. So exhausted. Filming. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think that's amazing. Um, we also see that Denny, now this is, this is the interesting part of the movie. So we've got Denny basically playing ball, um, you know, in the hallway. And suddenly a tennis ball rolls towards where he's playing with his toys. And he gets up and he's, he, he's calling out for his mum and he can't see his mum. And uh, he starts to walk towards room 237. This time there is a key in the door. The door is open and he walks in. The movie then cuts and fades to black. And then we see that Wendy is down in the basement and she is doing the work again of keeping the the hotel warm. She's heating the boiler. Now in the book, it basically says that that the fact that um, she's releasing the pressure of all the the hotel, it's technically what Jack should be doing. Jack's building up. He's got so much pressure built up of him. He's got the pressure of his family. He's got the pressure of this new job. He's got the pressure of writing. He's got all these pressures and he's not able to release it. And if he would, if he went down into the basement, into the boiler room, and he was actually releasing the pressure of the hotel, that would be a a significant situation where he'd be releasing each pressure of himself that's going on. But because he's not doing it, he's not addressing these issues. It's building up and building up. And this is what a pressure is in a, in a hotel. If you don't release the pressure and heat parts of the hotel, the boiler is going to explode. Yeah. There is the metaphysical situation of if Jack does not release this pressure, he's going to explode. And we, which we find out later on in the movie. 
So now we see that she's down in the in the boiler room and she starts to hear this screaming going on from the Colorado lounge, which is where Jack is typing his his um his book. She runs up and Jack is absolutely screaming. He tells her that he had a nightmare in which he used an axe to chop Denny and her to pieces. And he says that, you know, it was the most horrible dream he's ever had. As a disconcerted Wendy promises that everything's going to be okay, Denny appears at the other end of the room, looking disorientated and sucking his thumb. His sweater is ripped and there are bruises on his neck. He does not answer when Wendy asks what happened. She angrily accuses Jack of hurting Denny and takes the child back to the, their suite. Yeah. Now, the reason that she accuses him is the, the fact that he had actually physically abused his it, son. Well, because he had accidentally dislocated Danny's shoulder yeah. months before. So basically, if, if you know you haven't done it and your husband is acting very weird and your son comes bruised and everything, exactly, you know, what the hell is going on? And she basically accuses him and says, how could you, you know, you son of a bitch, how could you do that, you know? Jack yeah. basically looks, you know, and Jack's very, very disoriented. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, if you wake up out of being startled out of, out of a dead sleep, you know, you just, you're disoriented yeah. for a moment. He's sitting there and he's basically just looking at Wendy and looking at Denny, completely disoriented. Yeah. When, when she takes, when Wendy takes Denny out of the room, he looks at the, towards where they are like, what are you <laughs> accusing me of? <laughs> like, first of all, what the hell? And why, how dare you accuse me of this? So Jack is furious about the accusations and he storms around the hotel, yeah. making his way to the gold gold ballroom, which we said that if we were in this hotel, we would have just moved that the, into the home cinema. Don't, home cinema. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Going back very briefly yes, to yes, when uh, Danny had the tennis ball roll into his toys. Yeah. That shot took over 50 takes because the ball kept rolling off. <laughs> I didn't know that one. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, I mean, um, it is a fair distance for, that ends a roll. For, for what it's worth, the, all of the interior rooms of the Overlook Hotel were filmed at Elstree Studios in England, uh, including the Colorado Lounge where Jack does his typing. Because, oh, really? Because of the intense heat generated from the lighting used to recreate the window sunlight because the room took 700,000 watts of light per window to make it look like a snowy day outside, the lounge set caught fire. Oh, my God. Really? Fortunately, all of the scenes had been completed there, so the set was rebuilt with a higher ceiling and the same area was eventually used by Steven Spielberg as the snake-filled well of the souls in Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, while we're stopped for just a moment. Yes, we are. Would in you the like gold to know who room. else was considered for the role of Jack? Yes, I would. Robert De Niro. Okay. Who, after seeing him in Taxi Driver in 1976, which was filmed in 1976, he deemed De Niro was not psychotic enough for the role. Okay. He also considered Robin Williams... We get this. Absolutely not. Hold on. This is this is this is no, good that trivia, one. man. Okay. He considered Robin Williams, but did not think Robins would suit or Williams rather would suit the role after watching his performance in Mork and Mindy in nineteen seven, which was nineteen seventy eight, no. as he deemed him too psychotic for the role. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Robin Williams. Appa but, apparently, um, he no. was also briefly he also briefly considered Harrison Ford. No. No. No, 
No. I mean, in, a, in an alternate universe, in two alternate universes, we have got Harrison Ford and Robin Williams as Jack. Um, and I don't think the movie actually did as well as with Jack Nicholson because Jack Nicholson is the one and only. Because Jack can Jack Nicholson, I don't know, he's ha- he has that look about him that he can go from zero to a thousand in a second. That is why he is a legendary actor. He can do that sort of role. Um I can't imagine Robin Williams doing it, and I really, I can't see Harrison Ford no, doing it. No, he, he no, wouldn't no. Be able to pull the, it off. The, Jack Nicholson is really the only one who yeah, could have pulled it off. Like, the only like one. they did. Um, but it's interesting because Stanley Kubrick's secretary spent weeks, if not months, typing dozens of pages of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I, rem- I remember we didn't reading really that. Have the computers back then to to print it properly. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is. Uh, Jack Nicholson admitted to having a good working relationship with director Stanley Kubrick, but it was Shelley Duvall that he was a completely different director. He allegedly picked on her more than anyone else as seen in the documentary. We should see if we can find this arena making the shining and Stanley Kubrick, a life in pictures. Okay. He would really lose his temper with her, even going so far as to say that she was wasting the time of everyone on the set. She later reflected that he, that he was probably pushing her to her limits to get the best out of her and that she wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but it definitely was not something she ever wished to repeat. Yes. And that being said, according to... Um, Oh, wait a second. Hold on. Uh, despite his reported abuse of Shelley Duvall on set, Stanley Kubrick spoke very highly of her ability in interviews and found himself quite impressed by her performance in the finished film. My suspicion is that he was involving himself in a bit of method acting and wanting her and basically ghost gaslighting her and abusing her because he's the one that she needs to please. It basically bringing the relationship of Jack and Wendy to his relationship with Shelly. Yeah. And creating that dynamic of confusion and abuse and things that happen in an alcoholic abusive relationship. So that is like, she just didn't know which way was up, which is what was happening with Wendy. Now you did say, because um, the, one of the things that the hotel did is that when they um, closed down, they take all, all alcohol out of the yep. bars. Yep. Now, you said to me, which I'd never heard of, and I want you to expand on this a little bit more. Sure. Um, what is a dry drunk? A dry, okay. So, because basically, right now, Jack is acting like a dry drunk. Okay. So, there's a, a few things going on here, but one of which is um, Jack Torrance is an alcoholic. He is an active alcoholic. Yeah. Okay. And a very common misconception that people have is that alcoholism is the amount that you drink. Yeah. And that is not true. That is a symptom of alcoholism. Alcoholism is a spiritual, emotional relationship disease. Okay. It's about why you're drinking, how you're drinking and what happens to you. And it is completely possible to be 100% dry, meaning not drinking, because there's a difference between dry and sober. Yeah. Um, But to be 100% dry and still be an active alcoholic, and it's called a dry drunk. Yeah. 
And so right now, Jack is exhibiting that situation of being a dry Jack drunk. Jack is a dry drunk because he drinks to escape from himself and his life. Um, very often, alcoholics escape for drink to escape from some kind of uh, uh, emotional pain. Yeah. Um, or they just can't handle it. So they're just escaping whatever. Um, they tend to be incredibly narcissistic. Yeah. And it's all about them. They don't take any personal responsibility for anything. I mean, the whole um, attitude of as long as I'm happy, then everybody's happy. Yeah. The fact that he took a job and expected his wife to fulfill the parameters of it, very, very common effect. Yeah, you know, and, and certainly yeah. what, what we're looking at now in this situation of, of Jack, because we've got, you know, we've got the, the gold room. The, the next three scenes, the next four scenes, we've got, we've got the gold room. We have got room 237. We've got the apart, the, their apartment and then back into the, the gold room. So starting this scene, as we start off, we've got that he basically sinks defeatingly onto the stool. Now, you mentioned about the fact that Jack is really, he's very despondent about his life. So we'll actually yeah. tap into I, that. Actually, can I pause you for just one second? Yeah. Going yeah. back to what we were just talking about, I just found a, tr a trivia point that says on the DVD commentary track for Arena, the making of The Shining filmed in 1980, Vivian Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick's wife, revealed that Shelley Duvall received no sympathy at all from anyone on the set. Yeah. So this, this kind of backs up my theory. This was apparently Stanley Kubrick's tactic in making her feel utterly hopeless. This is most evident in the documentary when he tells Vivian, don't sympathize with Shelley. Kubrick then goes on to tell Duvall, it doesn't help you. Yeah. So he's really is pushing yeah, her, so he really to her limits. Doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically sit, uh, we see that Jack is sitting defeatingly on a stool in the gold ballroom, yeah. uh, empty bar, uh, with an empty bar there. He puts his head into his hands and he declares that he would sell his soul for one drink. He looks up and discovers bartender Joe Turkle, who was in Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, he was Tyrell in Blade Runner. God rest his soul because he's no longer with us. He passed away. Lloyd was Tyrell? Yes, he was. Oh. Lloyd was Tyrell. Go figure. Yes. Who serves him a drink? Jack is nonplussed by the sudden appearance of the bartender and even addresses him by name, Lloyd. In the course of telling his troubles to Lloyd, Jack reveals that he unintentionally dislocated Denny's shoulder, the same accident Wendy mentioned to Denny's pediatrician earlier. Now, there's a problem with this. Yes, there is. Please tell me. Oh, you can tell. No, no, you can tell it because you probably got it. All right. Well, no, we both know this and we've talked We know about this, this one. The fact is that he said it were, he's, Wendy said that they'd be, he'd been drinking and that now he's been five months sober. And, you know, that's so the that, accident happened five months ago five months ago which they've been in the hotel for a month so technically it's six months ago but jack says it was three goddamn years ago yeah so when did what it is actually it? happen <laughs> was it five months or three years who knows well honestly it probably was six months ago and just feels like three years to him <laughs> because he's exactly been sober for six months yeah so then we see he's that... been dry for six months yeah so we've, we've got some you know conversations backwards and forwards between jack and between lloyd and um Suddenly, we see a frantic Wendy. Wendy enters, finding Jack seemingly alone at the bar, and she pleads with him to investigate Denny's claims that a crazy woman attacked him in the bathtub of room 237. Jack, who acts a bit tipsy, 
begrudgingly agrees to go and have a look. So obviously we can see that he is a dry drunk. He's actually acting like he's he's drunk. Well, like I said, the alcohol has nothing to do with whether he's yeah. Yeah. So now he hasn't but, been served by anyone. Mind, he's been drinking, so he's feeling the effects of it, even though it's um he does it, he it's like he doesn't realize it's imaginary. Yeah, because he can see Lloyd. Yeah. We can see Lloyd. She comes in. There is no alcohol. There's no Lloyd. There's no. There's nothing in front of Jack, but he's acting drunk. Yeah. So Jack approaches the room two thirty seven. Denny appears to be having a seizure in his own room. Dick, back in his home in Florida, stares wide-eyed as he picks up on a signal Denny is sending. Okay, Jack- let's, let's pause for a moment and talk <laughs> about this bedroom. This bedroom is a bachelor pad extraordinaire. Oh, yeah. And and my, my favorite part of this scene, so he has a picture above his bed and a picture above his television on the opposite <laughs> wall of two very lovely uh, black women um and but the, the one above the tv the fro is bigger than she is it is an enormous afro i mean i'm telling you if you had to sit there and comb that out yeah exactly it would take you a month of sundays to comb out that afro and then one the one above his bed is another one with a, a rather interesting woman on a side pose smaller afro but stark raving naked well they're both naked yeah, but now you said if you were da- if you were starting to date him and came home to his house, it would be a very very uncomfortable situation. Yeah, but as as a woman <laughs> wanting to you know engage in relations with a man to walk in and find pictures of naked women all over his walls, it'd be like, what are you fourteen? <laughs> <laughs> I remember well, when my brother had that crap like the girls with the cars and the motorcycles all over his bedroom, and it's like, what are you fourteen? <laughs> Well, you know, some boys. <laughs> some boys, as they say, but some boys just never grow up. Exactly. So Jack cautiously enters room 237. The bedroom is empty. When he proceeds to the bathroom, he watches lustfully as a young, beautiful, naked woman pulls back the shower curtain and steps slowly out of the bathtub. The two approach each other and embrace in a passionate kiss. Jack captures a glimpse of the reflection in the mirror and sees the woman is actually a rotting corpse. He recalls, recoils in horror. The young lady standing before him has transformed into an elderly woman, a walking corpse with rotten, sagging skin. She cackles madly while reaching for him with the outstretched arms. Stunned, Jack staggers out of the room and locks the door after him. Now, now sorry to stop you, but yeah. here's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Did you know that neither Leah Beldam, who played the young woman, nor Billy Gibson, who played the old woman, appeared in another movie before or after this one? This is their only film for both of them. I never knew that one. Yeah. Wow. It's kind of crazy. It's interesting that the two women playing the alternate sides of the same role are the only ones in the film who've never been in another movie. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting that when you see the movie, um, uh, Dr. Sleep, he, uh, and we'll get into that, but anyway, the, the elderly, the old woman is called the witch, you know, that, that old witch yeah. that uh, inhabits that room. Now, a lot of people were saying that that was Grady's wife that he drowned in a bathtub. But now we remember that he killed both his daughters and his wife with an axe. Yeah. So the woman in the bathtub Couldn't just happened remember. to be just happened to be a woman that yeah. um, in the book had she had a heart attack while bath while bathing. And drowned. basically drowned, and they didn't find her for several days. Yeah. When they found her, that's how they found her. Yeah. So she was just a guest that died. It wasn't actually um, 
uh, Grady's wife. When he reports back to Wendy, Jack denies anything amiss in room 237. Wendy suggests they take Danny to a doctor. Now, this is what you're saying about the fact that, that Jack is so irritated with his life because he becomes irate, lecturing Wendy on her thoughtlessness and blaming her for everything that has gone wrong in his life, insisting that he they can't leave the hotel because of his obligation to his employers. He storms out, returning to the gold room. Now it's interesting that you know he's so frustrated. He says to Wendy, and I don't want to I don't want to swear too much, but he says, you know, Wendy, I have let you fuck up my life enough that you are not going to fuck up my life this time. So basically, when she says we need to get him to a doctor, we need to leave the hotel. This is when he says, you know, you've you've done this enough to my life. You're not going to do it again. Yeah, going back to the descent of Jack Torrance into madness. Um. Apparently, Stephen King tried to talk Stanley Kubrick out of casting Jack Nicholson in the lead, suggesting instead either Michael Moriarty or John Voight. King had felt that watching either of these normal-looking men gradually descend into madness would have immensely improved the dramatic thrust of the storyline. Mm, I don't know, because, I mean, Jack does it so well. Jack does insane. Very well, yeah. He does not do sane really well. No, he doesn't do normal really well. No, and and that has been my complaint all along is that we started out the film with him seemingly already halfway to madness. Yeah, and And I think it's been much more powerful if he had come. Okay, now if, if 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 I personally would have liked to have seen it where we come in, he's a normal Joe, he really wants to do well at this, he's doing the work of that he was hired for. And then we watch him eventually move into her doing it all and him doing what it became. <laughs> jack shit. Yeah, he doesn't jack do shit. anything. You know, jack, but, jack does jack shit. <laughs> but I but I think that would have been much more powerful. Yeah. If if we had if we had been given a reason to like him at the beginning, yeah. It would have been so much more powerful and so much more terrifying for him to turn into what he did. Yeah. It seemed that when he was driving up to the to the overlook, he was nonplussed about going up there with his family. Exactly. But if we had a man, like I said, that that really nice looking guy from the photograph. Yeah. If we had had this Mr. Joe Normal and we had seen that he and Wendy had a good relationship, that they actually had chemistry, because that was one of the problems as well, is there was just no chemistry between the two of them. No. He was already, you know, um, traumatized. But I I personally think that was the way that that Kubrick wanted it, because as I said, driving up to the hotel, he was nonplus about his wife and son being there. So him pulling away further and further away from Wendy was basically showing you that he really didn't give a shit about her to begin with. Right. But that's what I'm saying is it would have been more powerful and a better film if he had cared and was involved. And oh, then so, away. so if he started off loving and suddenly exactly broke it would apart have been a much more powerful and much more horrifying film. Yeah. Okay, well, that works. Yeah. Um, so he storms out of the apartment because they've got a, a hotel a hotel apartment in the hotel and he returns to the gold room, which is now the scene of an extravagant party with guests dressed in 1920s fashion. Lloyd serves him a drink because Jack walks up and goes, I was gone, but now I'm back. And he goes, your usual Mr. Torrance? He goes, yep, that'll do me. He, st- he basically strolls through the crowd, but he doesn't get far when a butler carrying a tray, uh, tray runs into him, spilling avocado on his jacket. 
The butler convinces Jack to come to the bathroom to clean Showing up. what on him? Avocard. Avocard? Yeah. Never heard of it. Uh, didn't you remember he, he he said it's it's avocado, so it tends to stain. Oh, I, a, I, I heard like ADV. I heard apricot. No, it's avocado. Um, um, can I can I just bring us to a grinding halt? Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. But what's interesting? Oh, but you're gonna like this because it's right. Blade Runner. Perfect. So outtakes of the shots of the Volkswagen Beagle. It's not a um. It's a beetle. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't think you said that. Traveling yeah. toward the Overlook Hotel at the start of the film were later used by Ridley Scott when he was forced by Warner Brothers to add a happy ending to the original release of Blade Runner. Stanley Kubrick, who was a fan of Scott's previous film, Alien, happily gifted the footage under the condition that only shots were used that hadn't been used in The Shining. This was no problem as enough unused footage of the scene was available. I'm sorry to say, but I actually did know that one because I've got all four um, versions of Blade Runner. And the very first one where you see that Deckard and Rachel are driving away, you can see that there is, they, they follow a, a vehicle where you also can see the, the hills or the, or the yeah. mountains on one side of the car. So, yeah, I knew that Appar one. Apparently... Saul Bass reportedly produced around 300 versions of the film's poster before Stanley Kubrick was satisfied. I like the poster that they did for The Shining. Yeah. I thought and, it was a very interesting and one. And Stephen King got the idea when he was staying at the Stanley Hotel in, Col in Estes Park, Colorado. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's awesome. And they stayed in room 217, the haunted room in the novel, but room 237 in the film. Yeah. They also were given um, a number. He was actually given a number of rooms that he could actually renumber of what the number could be. And it was, huh. you know, it'd be 237. The scene of Halloran approaching the hotel in the snowcat was shot in real snow approaching the real Timberline Hotel in Oregon. Oh, cool. We'll get to that one. Yeah. Um, so the but butler introduces himself as Delbert Grady, Philip Stone. Jack remembers the story. Mr. Ullman told him, told him about the former caretaker named Grady murdering his family and confronts Grady with the information. Grady denies that anything of the sort took place and furthermore insists that Jack has always been the caretaker. Mm -hmm. Jack is confused, but accepts, seems to accept Grady's story. Grady goes on to tell Jack that Danny has a great talent and is using this to bring an outside party into the situation, referring to Dick Halloran with a racial slur. Am I going to say it? No, I'm not, no. because you can figure out what an African-American name could be called. I'm not about to say it. I'm not that kind of person. Yeah, I well, don't like to say you know, that. But, name. but 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 this is the. But this is 1980, and it was well, still. This is 1980, and it was a flashpoint word back then. Yeah. However, in the 1920s, it was much more socially acceptable, which is when the butler is from. Yeah. So but, when he says then, the N word, it was said with disdain. So it definitely was a pejorative. Yeah. Because he says, you know, and I'm not going to say the word, I'll just say the N. He says a, a N. And Jack says an N. And he goes, an N cook. And he goes, oh. And he goes, and this is the, the whole thing. And Grady advises Jack on how to correct Denny and how to deal with Wendy if she interferes. And it's interesting that he tells the story. He goes, you know, my girls didn't like the overlook at first. In actual fact, one of them, tried to burn it down with a pack of matches yeah. but i corrected them sir and when my wife uh, tried to stop me from doing my duty i corrected her so it really is and of course the, you know this is when uh, you know jack says yeah well danny is a very willful boy 
And this is when he says a very naughty boy, if I may be so bold, sir. And he goes, and this is when he says, oh, yeah, well, it's his mother. She interferes. And this is when Grady does say, and the fact that his wife, inter- his, his wife tried to interfere with him correcting his girls. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to, okay, is Jack, has Jack always been the, the caretaker? Has Grady ever been the caretaker? This is, you have to go back to the story and read. Yeah, I always found that scene to be really confusing. It's a very confusing honest, story. Yeah. But when you look at 1921, when you see that the picture, we find that, yeah, Jack has always been the caretaker. It's a conduit through another person to get Danny into the hotel. Yeah. Back in Florida, Dick has no luck contacting the people at the Overlook Hotel. Worried about Danny, he books the next flight to Colorado. That's a really nice guy to actually willingly get out of uh, a, a heat wave that's going on in Florida to go back to huge amounts of snow and ice and sludge and shit and coldness. So what are you looking there? Oh, sorry. Um, going you have back a- to... Going back to Tony, I found an interesting piece on Tony. Okay. Okay. First of all, Stephen King apparently has never understood why people find the story scary or the movie scary. Um, it's not scary. Uh, it's a psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a horror movie, but it's not a horror. I mean, there's there's a couple it's of more scenes. It's a thriller are, than a horror movie. It is. Yeah. I mean, you get to see the the, the killings of the two little well, girls. Let's put but put it this way: I don't do horror, but I enjoy this movie. Yeah. Um, but Danny Torrance's imaginary friend, Tony, isn't given much of an explanation in the 1980 film. However, in the book, to- and because we've been talking about Dr. Sleep, Tony is actually Danny's adult self speaking to him from the future. In the book, Danny's middle name is Anthony or Tony for short. Furthermore, in the book, Tony is a benevolent imaginary friend who acts as a sort of conscience as well as a sixth sense and a companion for Danny since he doesn't have many friends at school. Tony is also fully visible to Danny as a person, but in the film, Tony is invisible and is only a high-pitched voice but speaks to Danny's parents through Danny himself. In the film, Tony also appears almost evil or a sign that Danny is mentally disturbed often making Danny pass out or scaring his mother, showing him graphic images and eventually full-on possessing Danny and making him write red rum on the hotel wall with Wendy's lipstick. But we do think that when we were watching this movie, we did think that when Danny became overwhelmed with what was going on, um, Tony took over to shield Danny from what was going on. Yeah. Because it was almost like he became catatonic and and like Wendy is like, you know, when he says, you know, it, you know, Danny is gone, Mrs. Torrance. It's like I'm Danny. I'm I'm Tony. I'm protecting him. him, so that way yeah. he's not going to freak out. It's it's interesting. Um, Stanley Kubrick actually had a great relationship with Danny Lloyd, yep. and Danny Lloyd said years later that um, his family would get like Christmas cards and stuff from Stanley Kubrick, and he actually called him to congratulate him on his high school graduation. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, isn't that nice? Uh, at the Overlook Hotel, Wendy arms herself with a baseball bat and looks for Jack, intending on leaving the hotel with Denny, whether or not Jack agrees to come. And he does, she does see it. She's up in the room saying, well, I'm going to go. And if he doesn't want to go, well, we'll just leave without him. Entering the lounge, she spots Jack's manuscript left unattended next to the typewriter. She reads what Jack has been writing. Hundreds of pages, a repetition of a single sentence. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. boy. She realizes that Jack has gone mad. Now, I've said to you many times on this, is that when he's typing, he is what I think that, and as I said, it's another another rabbit hole. When he's typing away, he's typing many words that he is writing down a novel. Mm -hmm. The hotel is making him believe what he's writing, but it's actually his writing 
all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. Hmm. But it's it's also interesting that Stephen King was really upset. One of the reasons that Stephen King was really upset with this film. <laughs> Number 65. <laughs> I know, right? Because he was hugely disappointed that the themes of the evils of alcoholism and the disintegration of the family unit because of the alcoholism were relatively unimportant due to the film because of his own battle with alcoholism. He nearly lost his own family. And because of this personal investment in that aspect of the novel, he was really upset with the film. Yeah. And look, I I, I agree with him on that. I do. I agree with that one. Yeah, I certainly absolutely agree with that one 100%. Um, Jack approaches from behind and asks sarcastically, how do you like it? Wendy shrieks with alarm and wheels around to face him. A confrontation ensues as Jack demands to know her intentions regarding leaving the hotel with Denny, while Wendy retreats, brandishing brandishing the bat. She screams at Jack not to hurt her, and he swears that he will not. (laughs) He will not. Instead, he intends to kill her. He basically says, I'm not going to hurt you. Darling, light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. And she is. I missed that. Because this is when she's walking up the stairs. Yeah, I know exactly when it is, but I must have zoned out. You must have. Yeah, because he was walking up towards her. And so Wendy is swinging the bat. Now, unfortunately, we've got a bit of a goof with the bat. I didn't see it. But then again, we can understand why it would happen. Um, Wendy hits Jack on the head with a bat at the top of the stairs causing him to lose balance and tumble down the staircase, injuring his ankle in the process. What's wrong with the bat? It bounces. It It flexes. It's rubber. (laughs) I mean, obviously, no one's going to hit another actor in the head with a goddamn bat. But, yeah, it's... language, mister. It's unfortunate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate that as as he hits it, you can see the bat bat flex. It's only for a split second. You've really got to watch for it. But when you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, I totally didn't see that. Wendy drags Jack's limp body into the pantry and locks him inside just as he regains consciousness. Now, you have a bit of trivia around this. Yeah, this one is that when you see Jack being dragged, they tried to get Shelley Duvall to drag um, Jack Nicholson, and he was too heavy. They tried it at least half a dozen times, and Shelley Duvall could not move him. So when you see him being dragged, it's two of the camera people that weren't working that day on the camera there were actually extras that were pulling him <laughs> along the along the thing. When you get to see Wendy coming up towards the door and she's got two legs, that's actually um, a dummy's legs. As okay. he as she, as she comes up and she she's pulling him up. When you see her dragging into the into the um, dragging him into the pantry, it's a two shot. You see her being her dragging the legs in. Then you see Jack trying to hold the hold himself out of the door. Well, it was a two, it was a staggered shot that was basically cropped into one. Yeah. So it looks like that she's dragged him all the way in, but she couldn't move him at all. Uh, going going back very quickly to yeah. why Danny got his arm dislocated. Yeah. Apparently, um, this mirrors an event in Stephen King's actual life when his son once started playing around with his writing notes and he felt like killing him. Oh really? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Well, yeah. But I, kids don't know any better, though. No, that's the no, whole they thing. don't. And and as they say, the reason there's not more child abuse in the world—that's why kids are made so cute—is because so that their parents won't kill them. Yeah, yeah, I understand that one. So Jack, to, uh, so basically, as he regains consciousness into the uh, into the the pantry, 
uh, Wendy locks him in, and Jack tells her, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to go and take uh, Denny down the snowcat today, and I'm going to take him down the sidewinder. And he goes, you've got a big surprise coming to you. Go check out the radio on the snowcat. Well, she goes and finds out that Jack has sabotaged the radio as well as the snowcat, stranding them all there. She goes outside to check on the snowcat and confirms what he had told her, that he'd actually ripped apart the distributor. There's no way in hell that snowcat's going absolutely anywhere. A few hours later, Jack is roused from a nap by the sound of Delbert Grady's voice. Grady expresses disappointment and the lack of confidence in Jack. But Jack assures him that he can get the job done if he's given one more chance. The pantry door suddenly unlocks. It's because that the the spirits and the ghosts that are inside. Uh, and basically, Grady basically says, you know, we've underestimated your wife. Your wife seems to be a lot stronger than what we were hoping she was going to be. We thought this was going to be easy, but we found out that she's a little bit more, res- she's got more resilience more to resilient, her. Yeah. yeah. So, and of course, this is when he goes, listen, I'm only temporarily sidelined for the moment, just for the moment. But if you let me out, I will certainly, certainly get this thing done. And of course, the, the pantry door unlocks. Obviously, the, the spirits actually have, have done it. Wendy has fallen asleep in her room and Den- Denny in a trance carrying a knife. Well, he doesn't, he's not carrying a knife. He walks over to her dresser a side table and she's got the knife from the kitchen sitting on the side table. He picks up the knife and runs his finger across the blade. And of course, he doesn't cut himself. But he looks at, he walks over to her uh, makeup now, now area. Now, this whole time you hear Tony's voice going, red, red rum. rum, red rum, rum. yeah, red rum. Um, and he's muttering that that red rum repeatedly. He takes Wendy's lipstick and writes red rum on the bedroom door. On the, door oh, sorry, the, bathroom, the bathroom door, sorry. He begins to shout red rum, which wakes Wendy. She clutches him to and, her. And he's standing there holding the knife. Yeah. Um, and she's like, wake up, Denny, wake up. And she sees the reflection of the bathroom door in the mirror. Reversed, it reads murder. At that dun, instant, dun, dun. I know, dun, dun, dun. at that instant, banging sounds start coming from the door to the hallway. The sound is Jack swinging an axe at the locked door. There is a fun fact about this door. I was going to say, please tell us the fun fact. The this fact is, an awesome fun fact. This is the fact is that um, Jack Nicholson was actually a, a chief in the volunteer, a volunteer chief in the um, fire chief, department. Just a volunteer firefighter. Volunteer firefighter. I think he was a chief. I don't think so. I didn't, I couldn't find that. Oh, but he was a volunteer firefighter and he knew how to take down a door. They tried six doors. He took every single one of them down. These were prop doors. So basically the stage guys actually had to build a stronger door. And even then he was able to get yeah, it they, get they through too quickly. Okay. Because interior doors are hollow in the middle. Yeah. And they had to actually put up a solid wood door to try and slow him down and it still didn't and there's still a goof in it that when um there's actually he, two goofs you tell you say yours first. when he does the here's johnny line one section is missing but then when it goes back for him to do the next um hit there's two of them to gone thank you that was what i was going to say when you see when you hear the snowcat of of um dick halloran coming up the two panels are gone yeah he never sh- he never chopped down two panels. He chopped down a quarter of the panel in, yeah. in the on this on the uh, right hand side of the door. The sound is Jack swinging the axe through the locked door. Wendy grabs Denny and locks them inside the bathroom. She opens a tiny window, snow blanketed by um, obviously snow, and pushes Denny out. He slides safely to the ground. She tries to get out the same window but cannot fit. 
she tells Danny to run and hide. Meanwhile, Jack has chopped his way through the front door and calls out, Wendy, I'm home. <laughs> Jack then knocks politely on the bathroom door, saying, little pig, little pig, let me come in. Not by the hair of your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And then he hits the door with the axe. And this is when Wendy screams. Wendy holds the knife and tries to steady herself as Jack begins to chop into the door. After chopping away one of the panels, he sticks his head through the, through the door and screams, here's Johnny, a reference to the Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson from 1962. Yep. Jack sticks his hand through the door to unlock it. Wendy slashes him with the knife, cutting Jack's hand and sending him recoiling in pain. Jack continues to hack at the door with the axe until they both hear the low rumble of an approaching snowcat engine. He stalks out. Because now we know that Dick Halloran has arrived because he's been able to get a snowcat and has come all the way up to the hotel to try and, I don't know whether it's to try and rescue, I think it's to rescue just Danny, but if Wendy's okay, he'll rescue her well, too. He knows that there's a problem. And and I love that he tried to call up and have, now, now this is another thing that really bothers me. Okay. So you're getting a call from someone in Miami, Florida, mm -hmm. literally on the other side of the country and almost as far south as you can go. Yeah. Okay. Colorado is in the western part of the US, almost as far north as you can go. And, and it's just it's 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 that it's probably about 4000 miles away. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so you get this call from somebody who works at the hotel saying I've been trying to get through and I can't. And he's and the, and they're like, "Oh, well the, there's a terrible storm going on. The phone lines are down, so that's not surprising." And he's like, "Well, can you get on the radio and contact them well we can't and by this point jack has tr tr trashed the radio yeah which for some reason i remembered him as taking the baseball bat and bashing the hell out of it but all he did was remove some of the transistors so it's going to be easily fixed yeah he just takes out three transistors yeah, yeah but for some reason i remembered him making it so that it could not be repaired yeah no he never does why. that he never does that in the movie um but anyway uh he's like well can you call them on the radio and they're like oh well maybe it's turned off or even though they're... in a previous scene he said leave it on and she said okay yeah you know so maybe they're which another... it was on but maybe yeah. as, as but he said they're like well maybe it's they're in another part of the hotel where they yeah, can't and hear, they can't it, hear whatever. it yeah um and we'll keep trying he's like okay i'll call back later but you would think, okay, I know there's a crap storm on and everything else, but there's a family up there with a small child. You think that they might have sent somebody to check on them? That was what I was thinking. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. I think they could have actually, the, the, the rangers should have gotten into a snowcat and gone up there just to double check. Because if yeah. this guy is so nervous about what's going on up there and so worried about a child and his family. Yeah, that if somebody's calling from the other side of the country because they're worried about them, you think they might have gone to check on them, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do, a, if you ring the police department and ask for a welfare check, they're not going to sit there and go, we'll just give them a call on the phone. If they don't answer well, they should be okay. Right, exactly. They're going to send someone out there to, to check up. So, yeah, I think that was probably one of the things that they actually should have done. The snowcat driver is Dick. Inside the hotel, he calls out and gets no reply. Jack, hiding behind a pillar, leaps out and swings the axe into Dick's chest, killing him. That absolutely horrified me, and was one of that the, was the, a hell of a jump I scare. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I, 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 I remember of all of the jump scares and and 
moments in this film, that was the one that literally just made my jaw drop because yeah. I did not see that coming. Yeah. I've, when I very, I remember the very first time I ever bought this movie to what from a video store to watch at home one night, my, my mother had gone out and I'm sitting there watching it in the dark and I'd gone through the whole movie and I'm like, okay, this is, and when that jump, when he was walking past each of the pillars and got to the last one, and then you hear the scream as he jumps out and clocks, dick heller and straight into the chest and kills him that jump scare almost shot me through the roof and i'm like oh my god that was just and you because you don't see it coming you know you can see that jack has gone completely mad and he's walking around the hotel with an axe but you don't know what his intentions are um but when he comes out and kills you know dick is like holy yeah. crap um denny hiding in a kitchen cabinet screams revealing his location he clambers out of the steel cabinet and runs outside and of course this is when jack then starts to chase Denny because obviously there is a situation where we are now going to go and kill poor old little, poor old little Denny. Not that, I mean, Denny's not the one that started this shit, you know, no, but no. Denny realizes he, uh, he is walk, leaving a trail of footprints. So this is really cool. He basically, he runs out into, um, he runs outside and Jack turns on all the lights. So meanwhile, Wendy has ventured from the bathroom and begins to search for Denny. The hotel has sprung to life, and even now, Wendy encounters its ghosts, sightings that shock and horrify her. At the same time, axe-wielding Jack turns on the outside lights and follows Denny into the hedge maze. Now, <laughs> what do you think the man and the person dressed up as a dog were doing? <laughs> oh, well, this is a family show, so I'm not getting into that. Now, now that being said, yeah, that's an actual thing. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, um, where people, okay, there's a couple of different um, fetishes going on here. What I've heard is it's called fur furries. Or furries or furfies or... Furfies or something. Something like that. Yeah. But there's two fetishes going on. One are the people who get off on dressing up as fuzzy characters. Yeah. And then the other one are the people who get off on having sex with people dressed up like fuzzy characters. That's really weird. It's well, I mean, I'm do we go there? No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say they've got a mental instability, but I can't say that because that's not my thing. It's their thing. But yeah, this is the whole place was just coming to life. She, when he goes around a corner and sees a guy standing there with a glass of, I'm guessing brandy, whatever. And he's got a, a huge cut down the, the front of his, his face saying, oh, it's a wonderful party, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this is just obviously a guest that's, that's died in the hotel. It wasn't Grady. Cause we know that Grady, Put a shotgun into his. Well, mouth I thought it looked like he it. had the had the the shot off the back of his head, and the blood was just coming down the front. I don't. I don't know. That's I mean, what it, it looked like to me. I mean, it could have been Grady. I'm not sure, but it doesn't. It just doesn't seem like it. I'm not really sure. Um. So now Jack is now uh, hot on the heels of Denny, who's running through the hedge maze. Denny realizes he's leaving leaving a trail of footprints in the snow for Jack to follow. He carefully retraces his steps, walking backwards in the same prints he's just created that in the was opposite so direction. That was so smart. And then he goes down the side thing and erases his tracks. Yeah. So now you're basically just following around in the circle. He now, covers now, the... now, now, that being said, yeah. uh, the maze itself, the, that snow, was mm. actually made up of salt and um, uh, crumbled styrofoam yeah and it's actually on a sound stage inside it's not yeah. outside yeah they got and smoke it was machines. so hot that as soon as they'd finish filming a maze scene in the snow they'd get off camera and just rip off the 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 layered clothing because it was so hot yeah because the lights were really making yeah. it yeah very hard 
to work in that situation. Oh, now yeah. while while you're you're on that guy who said great party yeah. in the book, that's the ghost of Horace Derwent, the late owner of the Overlook Hotel. Right. So it's not Grady. No, it's it's not. just someone that died. Yeah. Okay. Um, he covers the rest of his tracks and hides behind a hedge. When Jack arrives, he sees the trailer footprints ends abruptly, giving him no clue as to which direction Denny took. He chooses a path and lurches deeper into the maze. Denny comes out of his hiding spot and follows his own footprints back to the maze entrance, which is really yeah. good because now we have got a combination of Jack running around trying to find Denny following yeah. the footprints. And now it's getting confused with his own footprints. So Jack is now in a loop. He can't get out of the maze. Now, remember that the, the weather outside is like minus whatever degrees it's freezing cold. Um, Jack's, you know, trying to find Denny to kill him, but now he is completely and utterly lost in a dark freezing cold maze he's got no idea yeah wendy makes her way out of the hotel just as denny emerges from the maze relieved she flings down the knife and embraces him jack bellows his frustration from within the maze denny and wendy waste no time escaping in the snowcat that dick used to get to the hotel jack hopelessly lost in the maze freezes to death and i love the the scene in the morning where you see jack just sitting up sitting up and he's completely frozen yeah Right before the end credits, the camera slowly zooms in on the wall because we now come back into the hotel. We basically, the camera slowly pans through the hotel and goes up to a wall and in the hotel are an old photographs that chronicle the hotel's history. An old recording of Midnight and the Stars, uh, Midnight, the Stars and You echoes in the empty hallway. In the corner of one of the pictures is a young Jack. The caption reads, He wasn't in a corner, he was down front center. No, no, there's a, in, okay, in one of the pictures on the corner, there's a, there's a, there's, there's a group of like six pictures. Mm -hmm. It's the right hand side corner. It's the bottom well, right hand corner. I thought it was corner. the one right in the middle. At no, the bottom. it's the right, right hand corner. Um, it zooms in and in the center of the picture is a young Jack. The caption reads, Overlook Hotel. And he's Ho actually right, the one right above the caption. Yep. It says, uh, July 4th, uh, July 4th ball. Ball, 1921. 21. Overlook Hotel. Yep. The movie goes black, and that's the end of the movie. We hear the music, Midnight, the Stars, and You echo as they're, as they're playing. And at the very end, and you have, to, you have to watch it to the very end, and I only read this because I've never seen it right to the very end because you turn it off immediately, um, you hear the ghosts of the people in the hotel all clapping and start talking as the movie then fades away to zero. Yeah, it really is a shame that you're not one of those like me that likes watching through the credits. Um, I've started to do that because of all the Marvel movies. You can't just sit there and just yeah, turn I've, it off I've immediately. I've always been that person who sits in the theater until the very last credit rolls. No, those people annoy me. Yeah, I know. That's why you annoy me. <gasps> I don't annoy you. Dude. People, I don't. You should see what I did for her birthday. It was so, awesome. So on a scale of zero Okay, to... before we get to that, I got uh, a few more trivia bits for you. Well, and now we, we can do this first, then we can go back to your trivia. Yeah, fine. So zero to five movie reels, zero being how do I get the last two hours of my life back to five? It was a perfect movie and I'd watch it all over again immediately. What would you give this movie? I'd give it a solid four. I would give it a solid. I'm right there with you. I'll give it a solid four too. Yeah. There are so there are a couple of continuity only because I know about the movie. Well, but well, there, well there's outside a few of that, things, like I said, like Jack being insane before he even started. 
Yeah. Um, you know, but as I said, and- I don't think it's the fact that he was insane. I think he was he was really uninterested in being a father and being a husband. But no, so but I- if you look at him, he looks like he's already halfway there. Yeah, well, yeah, you but know? I think and it just I think I the mean, hotel I get just that we're coming out of the 70s and it was a really ugly period for people. The hotel just brought it more to life. Yeah, but uh, but like I said, I feel like he just was already halfway there before we even started. Yeah. Okay. You know. So a solid four for both of us. Yeah, solid, solid four. So what movie trivias do you have? Okay, I've extra got some, ones. I've, I've got a few more fun trivia pieces for you. More fun facts. Okay. Yes, more fun facts. So Lloyd the bartender. Yes. Was originally to have been played by Harry Dean Stanton. Really? Yep. See, I don't know. I mean, I I, I love him because he is Tyrell. Um, yeah. But I think he, I mean, anyone could have really played that role. He didn't have a huge role in, in the movie. No. He didn't really it was, do a it whole lot. It was not huge, but it was rather pivotal. It was, but it didn't really make no. any of the movie. It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't have it changed wouldn't have any part of the movie. It would have been by somebody else. No, not at all. But, but he was unable to do the, do the role due to his commitment in Alien. Uh-huh, now, right. this is very interesting. The color red is visible either overtly or subtly in nearly every shot of the film including Denny's um, sweaters. All of it. This is presumably because Colorado was so named because it's another Spanish word for red, which is rojo. Okay. I didn't know that one. Yeah. The famous opening scene was actually shot in Glacier National Park in Montana, just north of St. Mary's Lake. The road scene going in, the going to the sun road, does actually close down during winter and is only negotiable by snowcat. Kubrick initially sent a second unit to the Rockies in Colorado, but they reported back that the area wasn't very interesting. When he saw the footage they had, he was furious and fired the entire unit. He I was going to say thank you because there was there was a beautiful scene. He then sent Greg McGillivray, a noted helicopter cameraman, to Montana, and it was McGillivray who shot the scene. Now, what's interested interesting is that. Uh, one of the cameramen that got that only took the job because he was assured that the film would only would be sh- finished within six months for shooting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They got six months in. They were closing in on six months and not even half the film had been shot yet. But he had a commitment <laughs> to work on another film in Los Angeles. So yeah. he was actually going via Concord every other every weekend back to the U.S. to work on that oh. film and then coming back to work for con- for thing. Uh, I'll tell you what, that is that is commitment. Yeah. So one of the shots in the part where Jack is bouncing the ball against the wall yep. took several days to film, believe it or not. This is because the shot entailed the ball bouncing from the wall onto the camera lens as it filmed. As Stanley Kubrick was so determined to get this precise shot, the camera kept rolling while the ball was continually hit against the wall in hope of it bouncing back and hitting the lens. It took everyone on the entire set, on the entire unit, a go at having it in between other shots before it was finally achieved after several days. Wow. Yep. Leah Beldam, who played the the nude young woman in the bathtub, said in a 2018 interview that she was working as a photographic model in London and her agent was approached by Hawks Films to supply girls for the ballroom scene. So they sent her along. Yeah. She brought her modeling portfolio with her. And when the director and producer saw the several nude photos she posed for, they changed their minds and offered her the part of the woman in the bath instead. She said she enjoyed working with Kubrick, who was a true gentleman on set. They ended up filming an incredible amount of takes, and she spent a week walking around naked and kissing Jack Nicholson over and over. She had years of experience posing nude as a model, and she wasn't shy, so she had no issues being totally naked in a room full of men for so long. Yeah. 
I mean, the scene itself is very, very powerful because I think it's that moment where Jack can can see that, you know, when you see him look at her very seductively as she gets out of the bathtub, it's almost like this is what I really want. I don't want to be married. I don't want to have okay, this. Yeah, you see, this, this is the thing, though, is honestly, the look he gave her was more like Beetlejuice. Yeah. Ooh, baby. Yes. Yeah. And, just, and I just, I found that scene very demeaning. <clears throat> Now, speaking of naked women, the paintings, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the paintings of topless African American women with huge afros on the walls of Halloran's bedroom in Florida are of a style that were very popular in the late '60s and '70s. The fact that he had them in his bedroom make a point of the notion that his shining is not because he is a holy man of some sort, but rather just an everyday guy. It might also be noted that the ochre brown walls are reminiscent of the Overlook Hotel, which could be a way of inferring that this fellow was never completely free of the place. Yeah. And look, to be very honest with you, I remember going to my mother, going with my mother and father to people's houses that um, they were associating with and not that they were associating with weird people. Um, But I have seen when I was a kid growing up, similar pictures like that. Yeah. So it wasn't uncommon to no, see something like that. Shelley Duvall. Because that, sorry, that situation, it's not pornography, it's art. Yeah. And, um, but going back to, to Shelley Duvall, um, she suffered from several anxiety attacks and near mental collapse during the 56 weeks of filming. In a 2016 interview on Dr. Phil, she revealed that Stanley Kubrick that's interesting. It says in a 2016 interview on Dr. Phil, parentheses 20, 2002, okay. Okay, known for pushing his actors to their breaking point, had bullied her throughout the production and treated her more severely than any cast member, a point Jack Nicholson affirmed. Duvall pointed out that her character was in a near constant state of panic, anxiety, and fear, giving the punishing shoot schedule six days a week, averaging 16 hours a day. She had no relief telling Dr. Phil she believed the film caused her permanent psychological damage. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that he, that uh, Kubrick did that was actually rather rare in filmmaking is he wanted to film the 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 movie in or in scene order. Yeah, you don't do that. Most of them don't do that either because of actor schedules or you know whatever. Because like I remember um, with the Lord of the Rings, where they're finally at the very end, where they're leave, you know, the elves are leaving and this and that. They, that was one the, the the wrap up scene was one of the first scenes filmed because of Kate Blanchett's schedule. Oh, okay. You know, so you have to act like you actually know these people and have been through all these adventures together when you're in, in reality just starting out the journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's some so that does that does happen. Um, but what I also found, and this is my last fun fact, so you you, you can rest easy. Um, there's more, but I'll stop here. Uh, Danny Lloyd who played Danny Torrance, Mm -hmm. grew up to be a professor of biology at a community college in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that one. Because this was his only only movie he ever has ever done. Yeah. On a a completely... Oh, oh, actually, there was one more. And that is um, that a couple of pieces of the music was actually used in two episodes of Doctor Who in 1967. Really? (laughs) That's Sorry, a nice crossover. Um, one, just one uh, thing, just completely de- you know, away from The Shining, is that um, in the movie Godfather Part Two, uh-huh. when you see the scene where um, 
No, I think it's either Godfather Part Two or Part One. Either one of those where you get to see um, Kate and no, it must be number one where you see Kate and you see uh, Michael having dinner together. Mm-hmm. They'd never spend any any time together. So the director said, "Here's an idea. We're going to send you on a date. This scene is you guys having a date. That's it. That's just get to know each other." And it's because they'd never actually associated with anyone, any they each other outside of the actual filming. So they just set up that scene. So the scene you see is them actually the very first time they'd ever met, really on set, having a date together. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. That's completely unrelated. Well, and that's that would be. I'd well, say that. Oh, would be... Okay, well, getting back to one more relation. Did you know that John Williams was originally tapped to do the music? Oh, he would have been good. Well, and but then Kubrick decided he wanted to use multiple composers, which is understandable, you which, know. Which is understandable, but it does bring me back to one last complaint. Um, yes. Which was, I know that high pitched noise was supposed to in- indicate that there was a shining happening. Yeah, between but, Danny and and or Dick. or just whenever Danny yeah you'd hear Danny it. had a shining, you heard this high pitched noise. Yeah really wished he I, I have no problem with the sound cue like that but that was a really annoying pitch level mm. and that's it, probably it, what it Kubrick hurt. was aiming for it hurt every yeah. time they did that and that's probably what Kubrick was aiming for because maybe every time that they go to have a shining moment it's not one of these nice things but it's a high-pitched squeal no but it shouldn't have to bring on migraines in your audience either no I understand that which it could have done it could have yeah. easily yeah and um Honestly, it, it felt a little bit heavy-handed to me as well. Hmm. I would have, I would have liked it to didn't, have been it a didn't. little bit more subtle because, yeah. oh, he's having a shining. Let's make sure you know. Yeah, even though that he has that that look on his face, like something's going on. But you know, for me, it it didn't detract from the movie. You know, I it think it gave it's a, me a headache. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's it is just such a great movie. I do really enjoy this one, and we can do um, Doctor Sleep. I think next. we should. We'll do Doctor Sleep next week. How's that? Yeah. So anyone that anyone that's listened to this episode um, this week, stay tuned because next week we'll have part two. And I think we went a little talky talky too. I think we did. I don't know how many hours we've done this. This is probably three, four hours of bloody talking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's wrap it up and say, please feel free to connect with us at. Yes. What's our social media and stuff? Well, we've got hello at home class movie chat and home class movie chat on Facebook. Yep. So feel free to reach out to us on social media. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast, please refer your friends. We'd love to um, share the love and the, yep. and the like and subscribe to us. Yep. And please follow us. And until then, we'll see you at the movies. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sutton, welcome to Jurassic Park. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Houston, we have a problem. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley.